Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 26 of Beyond the Page, the podcast where we take you a little deeper into some of the stories and columns in Golf Course Industry Magazine. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of the magazine, joined, as I am sometimes on Beyond the Page, always on Greens with Envy, but this isn't Greens with Envy, by my friend and colleague, Editor-in-Chief Guy Cipriano. We have a couple of things we're going to talk about today. First, the renamed State of the Industry Survey, now Numbers to Know. And we're going to talk about a very personal story for Guy that is in the January issue. Before any of that, New Year, new sponsor, Beyond the Page, is sponsored by CPRO. CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, Legacy, and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full lineup of products... Work hard to ensure your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com, that's S-E-P-R-O.com, to learn more. Thanks to Cpro for sponsoring Beyond the Page. All right, Guy, welcome on in to Beyond the Page. This is two months in a row for you on Beyond the Page. Last month you hosted with, uh, with Tim Morgan as your guest. Matt, thanks for having me, and because... We are talking on Beyond the Page instead of Greens with Envy. Does that mean we have to be more, more serious? Well, I think maybe a little more serious, a little less irreverent because of the subject matter, but because maybe we're working with numbers more. Uh, numbers to know is is the new name for State of the Industry. You came up with that. I had a different name, uh, but we went with Numbers to Know. I like it. I like it. It's going to grow on me. I think it'll grow on everybody. Um, it takes up 20 pages in the January issue, and I wrote the stories, but you worked more closely developing the questions, sending out the questions, uh, making sure we got good responses, finding out what the uh, margin of error was on stuff, and, and you really dived a little deeper into some of the regional numbers. Now, I have, a, I have a list of numbers that I do want to talk about, but before we get into those, what were some of your overall impressions of, I think... This was the 11th annual survey, and I think it was the eighth one that you've been a part of. Matt, let's not mislead the listeners here. You did most of the work for this project. All I had to do was work with Signet Research, get some questions together, send them out to our, our great audience, and crunch the responses. You did the legwork here. Well, I mean, I, I talked with people and I wrote stories, but, I mean, it's a team effort. But, but what were your overall impressions, though? Because, again, I have a, I have a few trends uh, a few promising but also not promising signs from this survey. Uh, before we get to those, anything that you really want to uh, to get to? We tried a few things different with this survey, Matt. First, the name. When you get the right. printed copy of the January 2020 issue of Golf Course Industry at your golf course or home or wherever you receive it, you'll notice that it's not called State of the Industry anymore. It's called Numbers to Know. Uh, the reason we did that is you look at a lot of industry publications that cover a lot of different markets. And I think at one point I looked on a magazine rack <laughs> here in our office and saw like four or five issues called State of the Industry. I said, we need to do something different. We've been calling it that for uh, a decade and we've had great success with it, but we try to be content innovators. So it's essentially the same thing as what we're doing in the past, but with mm -hmm. a, a different name. And the name really challenges the reader. You think about it, numbers to know makes you want to pick up a magazine and get some information in there that, that can help your cause. And I can 
say that even before this has been released digitally or print-wise, I had a high-profile superintendent, maybe the highest-profile superintendent in the industry. Uh, obviously, he, he would be in the top five. I'm mm -hmm. not going to give any names away here. Asking me uh, if I could pass along some numbers. I heard you guys were doing a survey uh, that I can present to my club's finance chairman for a meeting in a few days. So that's what we want. We want people to take these numbers you know, in the digital edition and the print edition and what they see on social media and use them to help make cases to get what their department needs to do a very challenging job. So that's why we changed the name of it, Numbers to Know. You think about it, not a lot of people are collecting this type of research. We do it every year, and now we got the turf reports that we've done uh, three of those in 2021. There should be more coming in 2022. So I would say that the the change right there in, in the name signifies what we're trying to do. And the other thing that we did different was, you think about it, there's a lot of great data that's been collected for years, decades really, about who a golf course superintendent is in terms of mm -hmm. what his or her tenure is, what their professional affiliations are, uh, what their salaries are what their education is. I mean, the GCSAA does a commendable job on collecting data on their members, but as our survey indicated, I think it was like around two per, per crew. Most of the people that work on golf courses aren't a member of a professional association, so the industry really doesn't know a lot about those types of workers who are so important to keeping this industry going. So we collected data on... Uh, the tenures and the the wages and the the nationality of those workers and their education level and their professional association. So, no, to my knowledge, nobody's ever really tailored a survey to, to to collect information on who works on a golf course crew and why why is that important? It's important because labor and hiring is sh such a challenge, and this really gives uh, our readers an indication of whether they're targeting the right groups. Let's put a pin in who works on a golf course. We have some numbers that are very, very good. I want to go through maybe some really promising numbers and then maybe some not so promising numbers, kind of the headline stuff here first. The first two numbers I want to hit, Guy, before we get into maybe figuring out a little bit more about who works on the course. And again, two full feature stories, 30-some charts, more than 20 pages in the January issue. It'll be online a little bit later this week, it'll be in your inboxes a little bit later in January. Let's start with two numbers, and those numbers are 77 and 89. And those represent 77% of all courses that responded turned a profit in 2021, and 89% either turned a profit or broke even. That works out to a little bit more than eight out of every nine courses that did not lose money last year. And you're probably asking yourself, I know you're not asking yourself, Guy, because you know, but if you're listening to this, you're probably asking yourself, how does that compare to previous years? Is that good? And and it is. It seems really good. 89% of courses profitable or at least broke even in 2021. In 2020, the number was 79. In 2019, it was 73. In 2018, it was 62. And in 2017, it was 68%. So four straight years of climbing. And up 62 to 89 percent since 2018, up 68 to 89 since 2017. That seems really good, guy. And can you imagine, Matt, if courses weren't doing this well financially over the last two years, what type of situation the industry would be in with the rising 
cost of labor and supplies. It would be rather dire. So yeah, in 2018, that number was 62%. Uh, just imagine if this was a similar situation to 2018 with rounds played and revenue coming into mm -hmm. golf facilities and what the cost of everything were. Yeah. Were you surprised that that number was as high as it was in 2021? Or, or did you expect something like really, really robust given all the anecdotal information we've, we've accrued over the last well, year? Well, no, we've had such uh, strong anecdotal information. I mean, Matt, every time we go out, we see yeah. it with our own eyes and we try to go around a golf course with a golf course superintendent or assistant superintendent. And you, you can barely get around the course unless you, you do it first thing in the morning or late afternoon, because there's so many people out there. And then you just look at the golf data tech and NGF numbers throughout the course of the last two years. And I th think when the final 2022 numbers come out from Golf data tech and the NGF, it's going to be somewhere between 20 to 25 million more rounds were played in 2021 uh, compared to 2020. And 2020 was a, a, a huge year compared to 2019. And I think the, the rounds played increase will fall somewhere around 4% more in 2021 nationally than 2020. So you put what we're seeing with our own eyes. I mean, just, you know, outside our office here in Northeast Ohio, which isn't even the most robust no. Golf market. It's, it a, might, good, it's it, a good golf market, but it, it's not. But Florida in terms or of Arizona or money being infused yeah. in it and the number of people playing on golf courses, we just go to the facilities around our office and they're a lot more crowded than they were two years ago. And, and people are out using them. And they're people that I had never seen use them before 2020. And they came back in 2021. And my guess is they're planning on coming back in 2022. I was just in the Phoenix Scottsdale area in Tucson, Arizona, and, and things were packed down there so there there really is no sign right now that the surge is going to slow down which is like we mentioned with the, the the cost of labor and and supplies and it's just so expensive to operate not just a golf course but any type of business i mean mm -hmm. we're we're feeling it here at at a publishing company too with some of the decisions that we have to make and uh yeah it's just uh it, it, it's remarkable that the industry is doing this well when you think about where it was just 3 years ago with the 2018 numbers we uh, mentioned, and no, I'm not. I'm not surprised that it's jumped to 89% uh, of courses have been profitable or broke even. What I'm wondering is, if you're the 11% that weren't profitable <laughs> yeah. in 2021, what you may really have to reassess what you're doing. Well, short now, and long term. Now, to be fair, there were 7% who said they weren't profitable. There were 4% who said they didn't know. So yeah. maybe, maybe they were and they didn't know. More likely, they they didn't want to say. But only 7% for sure said they weren't profitable. Still, those 7%, whether it's 7 or 11, uh, there are going to be some some heavy questions coming yeah, up, I'm and, sure. And everybody has their reasons, and there were still some restrictions in parts of the country, and uh, who knows you know, what type of weather events maybe, maybe caused that. So uh, there's a reason for everything, Matt. Now let's go to a number that maybe isn't as good, and that's 907,821, and that is the average non-capital maintenance budget reported among survey respondents. It seems, I don't know, it seems okay. $907,821. It's, it's a fair amount of money. Last year, though, that number was $1.044 million. That is a 13% drop from 2021. It's also a lower number than was reported in 2020 and 2018. And this wasn't in the story. 
because I didn't use the BLS calculator while I was while I was going through everything. Well, maybe I should have, but but it's here on the podcast. So inflation from January 2018, just General Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation rate from January 2018 to November 2021, most recent month that there are numbers. Inflation was 12.13%. And over that same time, the average non-capital maintenance budget, at least as reported in our annual survey, dropped half a percent. There are a lot of factors that could explain that. Mm -hmm. One thing, Matt, in the early years of this survey, in fact, really up until last year, we typically got more responses from private golf courses Mm -hmm. than non-private golf courses, uh, simply because uh, the private course superintendents are a little bit more proactive about getting on our list and getting industry information Mm -hmm. sent to them, whatever reason. Uh, This year we had, which is great, uh, 51% non-private respondents, uh, 49% private. You know, really they're they're two non-private golf courses for every one private golf course in the United States. So we're starting to uh, reflect that number better with who our list and our surveys and our publications reaching. And that, that that's great in my mind that we're getting more uh, part- participation from the non-private side of the industry and surveys and, and those facilities that want to be involved. So I think that that could explain the drop. Uh, another thing is when you think about uh, these are all projected, right? And it, that 900,000 number is projected for 2022. You know, maybe we should have asked the question, are you projecting uh having as big of a crew size in 2022 as you're having in 2021, because if, if you can't find the people to fill an entire crew, uh, that, that, that could explain the drop, or it could just be the type of facility that that's responding to our survey too. So I, I you know, last year when it came into 1.1 million and I, I read that number to some people or uh, mentioned it at a presentation or going around a, a golf course with a superintendent, they kind of rolled their eyes like, oh, that looked really high. You it know? seemed, in, it in seemed fact, big. I don't even know yeah. some people in our area that have a number that high. I think <laughs> this year, I think the 900,000 is a little more in line with reality. And it again, probably is. When you send out a survey, you're relying on, you're only as good as the, the respondents that you have and the information that, that they provide and the participation that you get. And some years you just get a, a people that work at a different type of facility uh, participating in the survey that, than the year before. Okay. So a lot of variables. It's not skies falling. It is something to look at. It is something to keep an eye on, but we're well, not, and, we're not, we're not chicken little here. And sorry to, to, to cut in, but also if you look at the part of the, the, the country that we got the most participation, so 40% central region, region, 28% Northeast region, 17% West, 15% Southeast. You could, say that the West and the Southeast are the most expensive places to operate a golf course because you're sure. doing it year-round there and you have more year-round employees and more year-round play and more year-round mowing and applications and that that type of thing. So uh, really, when you look into the numbers and where the responses were coming from, too, that, that also explains that drop of uh, $200,000. It is very hard to boil down whatever it is, about 14,000 courses into, you know, even 30-some-odd numbers. Let's look at a couple numbers more, 57, and that is the percent of the operational budget devoted to labor and overhead, uh, 57% in 2022 forecast. That number was 54% last year, 56% in 2020, 57% in 2019, 52% in 2018. So while profitability among courses is way up, or at least as a percentage of courses, the percent of the operational budget devoted to laborhead, uh, laborhead, labor and overhead, 
basically flat over the last few years. Now, on the surface, they're, they're, again, there's so many moving parts. Is it people aren't sticking around? Is it uh, ownership or membership isn't willing to shell out more for labor? Lots of moving parts. Every club is different. But on the surface, I guess it's good that it's not dropping, but it feels like it should probably be going up to compete with other equal or on the same plane employment options. Yeah, every year we ask this question, and every year I'm expecting it to get to the you know 66 percent range, you mm-hmm. know, two thirds of the operational budget devoted to the labor and overhead. And every year it hovers you know somewhere between what 52 and 57 mm-hmm. percent. So maybe my uh, expectations for what people are getting paid or the increases that they're getting are higher than what the reality is, or maybe the reality is that uh, courses aren't hitting that, you know, 60% or higher mark just because there's so much turnover in golf course maintenance. And you you figure if you go out without, you know, two or three people, or, you know, in some cases, six, seven, eight people for the entire peak season, you know, that that's tough to get that, that number higher than 57%, or maybe that's just the way, golf operates and that's just the the way that the 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 model's built and the way that maintenance budgets and operating budgets are 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 set up is to somewhere to to get between that 52 and 57 percent but maybe uh when we ask that question next year will be the year that it finally gets over 60 percent because that that, that's one that just puzzles me every time because when i you know think about a, a business operating any business whether it's a golf course or a restaurant or a magazine your your people are the the greatest asset and they should you know the, the the better you pay people theoretically the better people that you have and the better productivity you get and the better product that you have so this mm-hmm. one just uh puzzles me every time and uh uh maybe that's why I'm not a business operator I'm just an editor because if I were well uh you know, operating finances at a at a golf facility I I would go bonkers with what I'm paying my people and make sure that you know it, it, for me it would probably get to to two thirds and you can always find supplies and materials. You can't always find great people, and great people cost more than supplies and materials. Well, you say you're not a business owner. I mean, you're not in sales. You're not the publisher. But, you know, you do operate a bit of a budget here. Oh, well, let's face it. We're like uh, golf course superintendents running the editorial side That's of true. a magazine. We're just we're uh, sort of viewed as an, uh, an expense, although that, that expense is – produces the product that drives the people to uh, <laughs> what the sales team's trying to, to sell. But you know, we can relate to golf course superintendents because as editors and writers in any form of media, you're, you're, you're not seen as directly bringing the money in like sales does. Listen, but it's all, it's all a giant team effort. Yeah. We work super closely with our uh, publisher, Dave Zai, and our, our national sales man- manager, Russ Warner, and they, they, they do a great job. And uh, But yeah, the, we're still always going to be viewed like a golf course as an expense that doesn't necessarily bring in direct revenue. Now, at the start of the conversation, I said, let's put a pin in who works on a golf course. We have, we have some very interesting numbers. We have numbers about full-timers. We have number about part-timers, about the number of high school and college students, about the number of retirees. And, and those are all interesting, but a couple numbers that I want to focus on. And the first one is 36. Only 36% of all crews among those who responded have even one woman 
on the crew. 36%, barely a third of all crews have even one woman. Now, I know uh, overwhelmingly male industry from the top on down. Uh, 36, though. Is that higher or lower than you would have expected, Guy? When we got the results back, Matt, that was the first thing that I, I looked at when Signet Research sent mm-hmm. us the uh, final copy of the results back. That was the question that I was the most curious about. I thought it'd be somewhere around 50% just based mm-hmm. on my experiences of working on a golf course. Whenever I worked at the Penn State golf courses, we always had a female or two uh, on the golf course maintenance team. And just for my travels, I would say that about half the courses I visit, this is just anecdotally, mm-hmm. I noticed I'll, I'll notice a female on the crew or I'll ask the superintendent whether there are any females that, that work here. So, you know, that, that number, you can look at it t- two ways. You can look at it as a disappointment that the industry hasn't be, been able to uh, develop and sustain female pipelines, or you can look at it as an opportunity. You can look at it as a way. I should be a politician with this type of spin, huh, Matt? But no, you, you can look you, at it as an opportunity that I'm getting dizzy. Working on a golf course is very uh, rewarding work. You're outdoors. You're you're in nature, which a lot of people value right now in 2022. There's a uh, health and wellness aspect to it, and if if the industry can just you know work hard at it and, and make it more inclusive, and when you do get a female employee you know try to find ways for her to bring her her friends along and that's one thing i noticed when i was up in canada in oh geez that was three years ago 2019 doing some uh projects with the maintenance crews at the men's and women's canadian open was that there were a lot more females on the crews at hamilton golf and country club and and magna golf club and that was just basically uh, people bringing their, their their friends along or their teammates along or their neighbors along. And you know, I think that that's the type of uh, system that needs to be developed in the United States. And I know it's such a tough thing to do because people that lead golf course maintenance teams have so many things to do on a daily basis. They're just scrambling to get the job done at a lot of facilities. It's not really a, um, you don't have time to make it a strategic or a long-term thing because you're just trying to survive the day and get to the next day and then get to the next week and get to the next month. And if you're fortunate, you get to the, the next year. But uh, you know the fact that uh, more than 60% of golf course maintenance teams don't have a female on it is definitely an area that, that can improve. And I, I think that it it's on all of us in the industry to raise awareness for that. I know we're doing that with some of the people that we've put on the magazine cover over the last few years and some of the, you know, the, the podcast series that we have and the voices that we're getting in the stories and the people that contribute to golf course industry. So uh, we just need to, it's just that multiplier effect. And hopefully that the, uh, the females that are entering the, the industry, whether it's to make a career out of it or just to, as a seasonal job or a part-time job or even a bridge job, uh, get a re- rewarding experience about it and promote it to the, their friends. And there are some promising signs. Uh, obviously, the work that Morgan Creighton is doing up in Canada. Um, she was one of our, what, 2021 Super Social Media Award winners uh, for Women in Turf. Uh, the promising news out of last year's U.S. Women's Open, when I think it was about half of all the Volunteers were women at the Olympic Club. Troy Flanagan uh, overseeing a, a great project there. And then the news last week that ProMedica is now the presenting partner of the U.S. Women's Open, the USGA really, really elevating the U.S. Women's Open. Uh, what, what is the prize money going from, I think, 5 and a half to $10 million, and it's going to be up to $12 million within the next four years. 
and then some of these courses that are going to host the U.S. Women's Open, Riviera, Inverness, Pinehurst, Interlock, and Oakland Hills. I mean, these are all good signs, at least for women in golf. I'm not sure how the U.S. Women's Open will relate to women in turf. Hopefully, it, it increases uh, participation and, and, and uh, women as a percentage of, of folks in the industry, but we'll see. So when you talk about the giant macro level of golf, to me, this might end up being the biggest story of 2022, and it happened, what, on January uh, 7th? First Fr- week. Friday, January 7th. Yeah. So think about this. Everybody talks about wanting to make golf more inclusive and do something to help women in golf and women in turf. But this is a major organization taking a major action. And I give a lot of the credit to the new CEO, Mike Wan. He started Mm -hmm. on July 1st, 2021. So less than six months into his tenure, if my math's right, July to early January, that's six months, right? six months. Uh, He is really doing something that probably should have been done a long time ago. Uh, Finding the sponsors, huge. I mean, ProMedica is a... It's in the health industry, and there are going to be some health and wellness initiatives around this, which I I think are great. If you can tie golf into the health and wellness aspect, that's really going to be good for people that watch these events or or, or see something on social media. But he went out, found a sponsor, did something that should have been done a long time ago, get the purse close to what the men's purse is for the United States Open. It's going to go to $10 million in 2022, $11 million to $12 million over the next three to five years. Uh, I'm sure that the coverage of the event is going to be elevated too with the you, platforms. That you would gonna, think with the that USGA much more is going to push to get it on money poured into it. Yeah, and you look at some of the courses that they're using. I mean, Pine Needles this year, Pebble Beach next year, Lancaster Country Club 2024, Aaron Hills 2025, and then this is some of the courses that they announced. Right, last the, week. One, the ones I rattled off. These are. Like, I mean, think about it. Huge, huge, huge names. Riviera, Inverness, Oakmont. Pinehurst in yeah. 2029, they're going to do back-to-back men's and women's U.S. Open really at cool. the same site again. Yeah, really cool for everybody except the the golf course maintenance <laughs> team at, at Pinehurst. Be, Although everybody that that was be, involved with the one in 2014 said that uh, it was an unbelievable experience, and uh, they're glad that they did it. Uh, Interlock in 2030, and then Oakland Hills and Marion are, are looming in 2031 and 2034. Yeah, uh, just shows that. That level of course is the same level of course that the the males are playing. I guess my only disappointment would be in those course selections is that it would be really cool to bring a U.S. Women's Open to a municipal facility. I think that that really helps promote the inclus- mm-hmm. inclusivity. You'd have a lot of young uh, ladies or just women golfers watching that, seeing them play a Beth Page Black or a, or Tory Pines or Chambers Bay, and say, "Hey, you know, that's it's in my neighborhood. I can play that at an affordable." price so well, that, that's what maybe we're really nitpicking here to find a disappointment in this but that that is maybe the only disappointment i have when i hear the list well of how many how many open slots venues. yeah how many open slots are still left i mean there have got to be a few they haven't filled up every year no, like nothing uh, so the next open one's 2032 golly i'll be I'll, almost 50 yeah I'll, I'll be old enough to play the uh champions tour at that, that <laughs> age my, but, my, my kid will be but anyway 16 by then i think what the usga did too and one oh. of the uh I think it's really going to raise what other organizations have to do. Yeah. Uh, the, the PGA of America, it'll be interesting to see 
if they elevate the KPMG Women's PGA Championship even more than they have, that event had a $4.5 million purse in 2021, which was the highest purse it's ever had. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if Augusta National even takes their women's golf efforts to a, another level beyond a amateur tournament. Mm-hmm. But I think the USGA and the RNA, too, across the pond. So I think the USGA, by going to that $10 million number with the purse and selecting some of those venues, and then the 11 to $12 million number in three to five years is going to force other organizations to do something similar. And I think that, you know, who knows how this is going to affect women's and t- women in turf, but this is unbelievably huge for women's golf that, that at least in one event, which is arguably the biggest tournament in women's golf, that the competitors are going to be paid close to the same as the male competitors mm-hmm. here very shortly. And it's the whole tennis thing, right? Like the tennis grand slams, the, sure. the, the sure. those four tournaments pay the exact same as for the females as they do for the males. And uh, it'd be great to see golf move to that point that would create uh, more interest and awareness towards the women's professional game. And that would likely filter down to the participation side of women's golf, which has got grown dramatically in the last two years. And then hopefully some of those new participants in golf or the, those females that are playing the game see that their career opportunities to, to work in golf in so many different capacities, including golf course maintenance. So to me, this has got a chance to be the biggest golf story in 2022 because what it would mean to uh, the long-term future of women's golf and how it's going to force other organizations likely to do something similar to what Mike Wan and the USGA did. And I think Mike Wan is already the leading candidate for uh, golf influencer of the year just with this one announcement. Sports executive of the year, maybe. And he did an incredible job at the LPGA. And to think about it, it seems like he's been at the USGA forever, but I forgot that he did so many interviews um, after he got named CEO. And I, I you know, the transition happened uh, July 1st, like I said, 2021. And he's already done some uh, awesome things, including one thing that's affecting golf course industry. I mean, the USGA has this driving equity grant to increase the coverage in women's golf. And we we're able to get a uh, some funding through that grant to take our wonderful women of golf podcast from bi-monthly to monthly. So, you know, just right there, uh, helping organizations fund the, the, the coverage of women's golf or women in turf, that, that that's huge too. And the more stories that are shared and the more positive stories that are shared, the more it'll inspire people to want to work on a golf course or play golf. And the number that we were talking about for our survey, hopefully if we ask that question five years from now, it's it's higher than what it was here in 2022. I hope it's a lot higher. And as you just mentioned, wonderful women of golf, before we get to the next number, uh, now monthly, this year, uh, still with Rick Wolfel, still great episodes. Episode number seven, currently available on the Superintendent Radio Network, either on golfcourseindustry.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Talking with uh, longtime pro, Karen Stupples. Really good conversation. Let's go to the next number, 49. And that is 49% of respondents said that at least somebody on their crew doesn't speak English as their primary language. I would have guessed a lot higher. I would have guessed that it would be well over half, maybe two-thirds of crews have at least one non-native English speaker. That seems that seems really low to me. I think that that goes back to, Matt, what we were talking about earlier, where we got our respondents from. So 28% were from the Northeast. A lot from and the Central. 50% Fair. were from the Central. So only 
uh, 32% of respondents were from the southeast and west, which are regions of the country where there are more non-English speaking residents and workers in other parts of the country. Okay, fair. And let's wrap up with one. This is. This just seems like a fun number. This seems like a really inspiring number. That's 9.6. 9.6 is the average tenure in years of full-time crew members. Almost a decade. 9.6 among full-time crew members. Uh, that brings a lot of stability to crews. That brings a lot of institutional and course knowledge. That That seems like a good thing to me. People like working on golf courses. And if you bring an employee in and, and, and treat them well and make it a good work environment where they're compensated fairly and competitively for their work, they're typically going to stay in it. I wrote about this in the January issue in my editor's note is that it seems like every golf course maintenance team or almost every golf course maintenance team has that core and those people that mm-hmm. just come back year after year after year. And really that core is what's led to the golf surge by keeping the courses maintained, especially at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic when uh, you know, there were very minimal crews fighting a lot of different things. And, you know, that core is just so important to this industry. And that's part of the reason why we designed the survey that we did and asked some of the questions that we did was to get more information about that core. So uh, that 9.6 number average tenure is very encouraging. And I think it shows that Golf course maintenance can be a very rewarding and fulfilling line of work. The fact that people stay at hourly jobs that long on average. I know we just talked more than a half hour about numbers to know. Again, for more than a decade, it was called the state of the industry. Now numbers to know. And we highlighted some of those numbers. There is a lot that we did not touch on in this conversation. So if you want more, I hope you do. Uh, Two great stories, more than 30 charts. It's 20 full pages in the January issue online a little bit later this week on golfcourseindustry.com. It'll be in your physical mailboxes, the actual print copy, sometime a little bit later this month, maybe even next week. We'll just do this real fast, Guy, because we still have Tim Morgan on this episode. Tim has been on fire with his columns for (laughs) a year and a half. Every month is, is great, and this month is no exception. Let's just touch on, elsewhere in the magazine, you had a pair of feature stories, one about Bringhurst Golf Course in Alexandria, Louisiana, it's maybe the oldest par three course in the country. We already talked about that last month on Greens with NV35. You can check that out on the Superintendent Radio Network in the archives. You also wrote a very personal story about Chartier's Country Club. And we've worked together almost three years. I'm willing to bet I have heard the name Chartier's Country Club more often than any other golf course when we talk. It's, it's in Pittsburgh. Your grandfather, the original Guy Cipriano, was a member there. You caddied there growing up. Now, the drive for the story was a bunker project, but it went so much deeper than that. We don't have to talk super, super long about it. It is a great story, though, and I just want to make sure people know that it's here and they should read it. So what should they know about uh, this bunker project at Chartiers and, and your walk down memory lane? The headline for the article is More Than Bunkers, and it it really started with me going there last year to write about the commencement of a bunker renovation and to see sharp tears again and to meet the people associated with the club. And then I went back this year to, to see the final product. And uh, yeah, I also got to experience the final product of the, the bunker renovation. And really when I went down there this year, it was to tell a story about a successful bunker renovation. And I got writing and got a little carried away and uh, really thought that, you know, these are more than bunkers. I mean, Chartier's country clubs always been a club with a, solid 
reputation, but by doing a bunker project and bringing back that Willie Park Jr. inspired design that Steve Forrest, the architect, did, and then giving um, COO and director of golf course operations, Bob Davis and superintendent Ben Hewitt, more functioning bunkers that, that, that drain better and play better and look better that they're able to do other maintenance tasks. It really is something that's elevated shark tears to a level that, you know, quite frankly, some of the longtime members who I, I talked to never envisioned the course getting to. And then also the, uh, the headline more than bunkers, you know, me getting a chance to go back to the course that first gripped me. Uh, it was pretty emotional to go and play it again. And I was thinking the whole time, you know, what would somebody like my grandfather who loved that club think about it? So, uh, you know, Sometimes we stay away from getting personal. It's about our readers and the people we cover and not ourselves, Matt. And anyone that writes should never lose focus of that. But I thought it was a case where I, I could interject a personal story into mm -hmm. a story that, that could help our readers potentially uh, pitch and sell a, a, a bunker project. And, yeah, it was pretty um, special to, to go back this year and see the final or in 2021 and see the final results of the bunker project and get to play the golf course for the first time in, in more than 20 years. And I know my grandfather would be pretty damn proud of what Chartier's country club has become and what that project achieved. Although he probably would have complained about being assessed for it and <laughs> whatever dues increases came because of some of the capital improvements that they're doing. And yeah, I think everybody that is listening to this podcast and everybody that works in the industry has that golf course that kind of where we fell for the, the game, and that's the one for me. Uh, we'll leave. Now on we'll this. get on to the better guest, Tim. No, that's okay. We'll leave. We'll leave Guy <laughs> on this one last lighter note. Uh, it, it is a very personal story. It's not heavy, but it is a personal story, and there's there's a lot there. Uh, but you pointed out that when you went back, you spent most of your time at Chartiers as a caddy, and this time you not only played, but you went a few different places where caddies uh, were not really encouraged to go. Yeah, so we did the uh, the group interview before we went out and played the golf course in the uh, the boardroom, and then we had lunch on the veranda, and those are places that, yeah, you, you just kind of never imagine going when you're a caddy, even if you're the, the grandson of a member. You've come a long way, Guy Cipriano. Uh, no, actually, I'm just kind of the appetizer before you get to Tim on this podcast. <laughs> He's Guy Cipriano, editor-in-chief of Golf Course Industry Magazine. We'll be back in just a few seconds with Outside the Ropes columnist, Tim Morgan. Turf plant growth regulators are a critical tool in keeping every course in top-notch condition. They not only help to reduce clippings on warm and cool season grasses throughout the season, they also help manage and enhance POA annua to enhance the overall turf quality and conditions of the course. CPRO provides industry-leading turf plant growth regulators like Cutlass, Legacy, and Musketeer to the golf industry, along with disease, weed, and aquatic management solutions. Their full line of products work hard to ensure your course is consistently looking its best. Visit them at cpro.com, that's S-E-P-R-O.com, to learn more. Thanks, Cpro, for sponsoring Beyond the Page. We're back, or at least... I'm back. Guy is no longer here, but I am joined by, I would say, an even better guest, Outside the Ropes columnist, Tim Morgan, back for the second time in as many episodes of Beyond the Page. Talked about the grainies with Guy in the December issue, or the December episode, I should say, talking this month about 
what you wrote about in the January issue, sustaining the boom. And Tim, this is a great column. This is an important column. I think this is one that anybody in the industry should read right now, this week when it's up online. Uh, it, it, it's a good one. You've been on fire for quite a while. Welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. I just, you know, blind squirrel every once in a while gets lucky, but, uh, yeah, we are, we are in a boom. I suppose that's good, uh, in one way. And, and depending on which superintendent you talk to on which time of day, it may be a bad thing, but, uh, I like to see people participate in our game. It's a great game. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I, I always said I'm too smart for the game, and it should be easy <laughs> to go out and try to play it. And it's so much fun, and it's, I love everything about it. So uh, we just, you know, we had dinner a while back. I, I, some friends of mine, all golf people, uh, somewhat cynical golf people, and uh, we said, how can we keep from screwing this thing up? And uh, because, you know, you're going to get the people that are going to take advantage of the situation more for profit or whatever their personal gain is, and they're not thinking about the golfer uh, and the sport first and second. So I hope to try to say let's let's kind of not screw it up. Well, and that is your lead, and it is it is a great lead. Here's a newsflash. The game of golf is thriving. Here's another. Unless we're careful, we're going to screw it up. And you outline, for, for multiple fronts here, uh, ways that maybe we don't screw this up. But let's start with what I think is, is one, of the, one of the great quotes here uh, from your column. The future of golf, if it's to have one, is being more casual and flexible. That's huge. I mean, you pack more into that sentence just in terms of admitting things and putting it out there than, than most people are willing to admit and put out there. I mean, it's a simple statement, but it's very important. Well, we are, I think it goes back to the traditions of the game and where we came from, from a society perspective. And that's fine, but it's, it's a little too rigid for me. I respect tradition. I belong to a club that had a great tradition in history in this game. But if I got late, running late, and I had to change my shoes in the parking lot, I'd probably get a letter from the board. I just don't think that's necessary. First off, when it comes to golf, I, I like people that are competitive. I like to see people ex excel at the game and enjoy it. But as I said at the ending of the column, frankly, we're not that good in the first place. So I think we need to be a little more casual about it, be a little more relaxed. And then as an industry, I think we have to be a little more flexible. flexible. How we play the sport, how we open it up to others, what's tolerable and what's not. And there's some things that aren't tolerable. That's just proper behavior and, and things. But we want to be diverse. We want to open it up to everybody, every you know, social and economic class. And that's what's great about the sport. The club doesn't know if you are a billionaire or you're a thousandaire or whatever. You know, it's just, your, your job is to get the ball in the hole with as few strokes as possible. And have fun while you're doing it because it's an incredibly hard game to play. And I think it's even harder to learn. Um, you know, I've, I've been a bug about the PGA and, and our professionals and everything. And, you know, we have a tendency to teach people how to swing a club, which is great. But part of that should be how to swing a club and then how to play the game. Because there's a lot of idiosyncrasies to this game that you don't understand unless you've been around it for a long time. You mentioned maybe getting letters from the board 
if they see you putting your shoes on in the parking lot. You mentioned in the column, you know, hoodies are not the end of the world on a golf course, especially in, in cool weather. You also have a list of, I think it's about a half a dozen bullet points of things that superintendents can do specifically to contribute to sustaining the boom. Because the shoes in the parking lot, the hoodies, uh, more casual approach, that's all cultural. Uh, but there is obviously a huge agronomic play here as well to really keeping this going. Mm-hmm. There Let, is. Let's start with, uh, and, and we don't have to go bullet point by bullet point, but uh, two of the things that you write, be mindful of the course setup, you know, finding accessible hole locations. The other one, slowing down the greens. Because everybody thinks they want fast greens, but very few people can actually play on fast greens, as you know, and as so many listeners know, and, and even I know after three years covering this. Yeah, I never understood why the poorest player wants the fastest and hardest surfaces to plan. I don't, I don't find it enjoyable to four-putt. That's um, <laughs> the old Ballesteros, how did you four-putt that green? Sevy, I miss, I miss, I miss, I make. And, you know, he wasn't even happy about it. There's one of the greatest players ever played the game. And, you know, I, the slow degrees now is interesting. I was having a conversation um, prior to writing this column with the superintendent, uh, Matt Willigan, who is at Fiddler's Elbow Country Club in New Jersey. And we were talking about, you know, he, he's always, we're just jibber-jabbering about the golf course a lot. And, and he said, you know, I, I hate, you know, the greens are too slow in the summer because of weather, this the amount of play. And, you know, a lot of clubs, if you have a hot, humid summer in the Northeast, you know, you, you're, it's kind of going to survival mode. And then now you go into fall, which is the best time in the Northeast. Where it gets cooler, days get a little shorter, the greens get a little faster. And then I started noticing that play was slowing down, there was backups, there was getting arguments about people not, you know, keeping pace and then... Uh, uh, didn't finish my round, this, that, and the other thing. And Matt said, you know what, maybe I'll just kind of dial him back a little bit. And all of a sudden, all that stress and comment went away. Um, you know, people ask me, what do you do about slow greens, Tim? And I usually tell them, hit it a little harder. I mean, it's, it's the tenet of the game is play the course as you find it. It's a game played outdoors. And I get it. We have the technology, the knowledge, the equipment, the expertise. I, I was on the phone this morning with a superintendent down in Florida, who's, who's cutting his greens for his club's big invitational at uh, 0. Or, yeah, 0. 0.70. It's 7.70. And, and, you know, members are, they don't get it. He's putting his golf course under extreme stress, and they're still complaining the greens aren't too fast. They're not fast enough. And he's like, you've got to be kidding me. So I think green speed has always been an issue. You look at it on television, and... It's that let's not do what they do on TV mentality, but they're asked to do that in some instances. But what you lose so much with fast greens is you lose architectural integrity. You take the enjoyment out of the game. I think, as I said in the column, you could put the flag stick in the hole in the middle of the green on a busy day. I would hazard a guess that if six people out of ten noticed they were in the middle of the green on every hole, that might be saying a lot, but most people are just focusing on hitting the ball and getting on with it and getting it in the hole. I just don't think we need it. From our architectural people, yes, fast greens. Pete Dye, he hated the stent meter. We were celebrating a couple of years this week since Pete has left us into right. the next life, and uh, he hated the stent meter, he hated fast greens, and he hated the USGA for doing it. And I couldn't agree with him more. Um, 
it just takes the creativity out of the design. It takes the creativity out of playing. And really, it hurts the beginner. The new golfer doesn't know what a whole location is other than a, a hole out of the ground. I really started playing about three years ago, and so I'm probably not in that, uh, that target demographic of uh, you know, knowing exactly where the hole is uh, on every green. I don't think I would notice, Tim, mostly because, like you said, I'm trying to have a good drive. I'm trying to have a good second shot. If I can make it to the, to the green and, and, and bogey, I'm doing just fine. And what's wrong with that? Nothing you got to start somewhere. Right. I mean, we had this, we had this debate here at where I live in, in Hilton Head, and I was on the Green Committee, which was a short-lived tenure because I couldn't deal with the frustration of those that really didn't understand. But we had people that wanted hole locations, daily hole locations, yardages, left to rights, front to backs. And I'm sitting there going, okay, first off, we don't have the staff to do that or the time in the morning because the COVID golf boom is barely letting the ground staff get the greens mown and the bunkers touched up, not raked, but touched up before they're inundated with play. So now you give a rangefinder to a 25 handicap and a whole location sheet, and they don't understand 15 front, five right. And they said, Tim, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, I think the thing is, I think it's a great idea, but we've got to take it one step further. It's the old Claude Harmon quote. We don't need whole locations for you people. We need green locations. That's all we need to worry about. You know, again, going back, you're not that good. If it's 150 yards, figure it out. You know, it's, it, it, it's not, it's just not something we need. And when you impact pace of play by making the golf course too hard, now it may not be hard, <clears throat> excuse me, for someone that knows how to manage the golf course, but for someone that doesn't know how to manage a golf course, it becomes incredibly hard and incredibly frustrating. So make it easy, especially on busy days. Get people in, get them out. Make them happy. Have them come back tomorrow. I, I, I remember when, when Mr. Palmer signed a deal with, with Callaway and everybody at Golf House, you know, oh, my God, the world's coming to an end. Arnie signed with a guy that makes an illegal drive. Okay, fine. But Mr. Palmer said the best thing when he went interviewed about the illegality of the club, he said, yeah, I get what the USJ is trying to do, and I get their criticism. But if a new golfer hits one golf ball and it goes 250 yards and straight, he's hooked or she's hooked. And that means they'll come back tomorrow. And if they come back tomorrow, they'll get another green fee, take another cart, have a hot dog and a beer, buy a sleeve of balls, everybody wins. This is the mentality we need right now. Everybody should win and have it fun. You want to take it to a term, tournament level, then by all means you play, play by the rules of golf set forth by the Royal and Ancient and the United States Golf Association. But other than that, who cares? I think, and I won't name the golf course, <clears throat> but I was doing a, a due diligence <clears throat> excuse me, years ago. You know, the, the hole is four and a quarter inch in diameter. So I'm, I'm looking at the course, and I'm, after about three or four holes, I'm going, let me look four and, four and a quarter in diameter. So I asked the superintendent. No, it wasn't superintendent. It was the owner of the club. I said, you not have the money to buy a new hole-changing device? He, what are you talking about? The hole doesn't look like it's plumb to me. He started to smile. He said, no, we make, on busy days, we make the diameter of the hole four and three-eighths. Four inches, four point three eight and it just dawned on me it's an eighth of an inch. 
yeah. different. And he said, people make a lot of putts, they have a lot of fun, and they're coming back tomorrow. I started laughing. I said, well, I'm not going to put that in the report. I'll tell you that. But that was pretty innovative, frankly. And it's not that much. That's one-eighth of an inch no. added to the diameter. That's wild. No, and then you think of the dia- the circumference of a golf ball is nearly equal to the diameter of a golf hole. Mm-hmm. And now you understand when you leave it on the lift, you didn't really hit a bad putt. You just were a quarter of a ball roll short. That's not a bad thing. So I think we try to convince people to have fun until they get the idea of, one, the difficulty of the sport, but then how great a reward is when you do hit the shot the way you want to. And that's one of the five greatest feelings in the world. Two other things that you write that, uh, one, you write explicitly that helps the pace of play. The other one, you could interpret it as, consider moving up tees, pretty self-explanatory, certainly can help pace of play and, and keep people moving and keep people happy. And the other one is having good first and tenth tees. So whether they mm-hmm. open on the front or the back, you have a, and, and it's all mental, but you have a good first hole, I think you'll probably have a much better round or at least a more enjoyable round if you have a good hole rather than just a slog of a hole to open. So I think two pretty good points there from you. Let's go to the, the one and tenth tee difficulty and this this goes back to matt and matt made a very good point he says i we have at fiddlers we have the river the meadow and the forest and the river okay guess what there's a river that runs through but the river is also bisects the back tee and the forward tee of the first and tenth hole and matt says on a busy day he said i just hate people just teeing up on the clubhouse side of the river because they're going off a one and ten, and they might dunk one in the water right off the bat because there's people standing around that whole first tee pressure. And he's like, you know what? On super busy day, go over the bridge and play four. Get going. Get a good tee shot. Try to make a par. And it just screws up the whole mix. So get people going. Don't make if you have a par five, don't go short. So people think they can go forward and two. And then make a long par three. I mean, it's just math. You've got to figure this stuff out. So getting people started, getting them off in the right frame of mind, get them a par, keeps them under that 18-minute kind of time frame of playing a hole in a foursome, and you just get moving. Just think about what you're trying to do. I understand in talking to superintendents, one of the hardest things they have is golf course setup. Because, one, they don't have the time. Two, they may not have the labor to get it done, and three, you have to find someone that kind of understands how to set up a golf course, how to communicate with a golf shop, how to make uh, a couple of easy hole locations, tee locations on the first, 10th, 11th, 2nd, 12th, 3rd hole, just to get people going. I think it's very easy to tell, everybody says, tee it forward. Okay, that's a great program, tee it forward. But no one says, what what do they tell you when they say tee it forward? What's the number one reason? Pace of play, get moving. Well, when I was a kid, I was a you know, my dad said, first off, he said those days, we're we're gonna we're gonna play from the, the ladies' tees tonight. I'm like, why? He said, Well, that's where your mom plays from. I'm like, okay, so well, she plays golf too, you know. And you need to know if you're gonna get into the maintenance business, you need to know where her golf ball lands and what she's gotta deal with after she hits a decent drive compared to how I hit a decent drive. And I'm like, ah, now I get it. So we would play different tees. Now, the other message my dad would tell me, 
by playing forward on one tee or back on another tee, you learn different shots when you get to that level. I don't mind playing the very forward tees. Karen and I go out to play here at Moss Creek, you know, with friends. And the, is Tim going to go back there? No, Tim's coming up here with the rest of you. I don't want to be, you know, antisocial. I'm going to go up forward. But you know what? I can learn a different shot. I can improve my game. Uh, again, you play the forward tees as you get to be a better player, you're going to learn how to score. So moving forward is an ability to, one, learn the game, two, pace of play, and then learn how to score. It's, it's, it's an education of the golfer. Then if you take it a level further, go forward, but then one day take all your odd-numbered irons out of your bag and your three metal. And then the next day take all your even-numbered irons out of the bag and your driver and your putter. And you learn how to create shots, especially if you're not keeping score. And I think the worst thing about playing golf is keeping score. I mean, everybody gets so focused on a number. If you don't make the number, the world is going to stop spinning. Uh, that's just not the way it should be. It would be a better game without keeping score. Uh, I agree. Maybe I shouldn't keep score. Maybe we shouldn't, any of us, keep score for a while. No score January. I, I think learn the philosophy of the game. Learn yeah. how to hit shots. Then, if you are really into it, like many people, start to kind of evaluate what the architect is asking you to do. And then as you improve and you do what the architect has suggested you do for the benefit of playing that particular golf hole, now it becomes really fun, and then you're hooked. Yeah. You're right. Then, oh, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. And I was going to say, and then the one step further is now you're starting to learn the game, learn the, how the, the ball reacts to a certain design, and then the final thing, which is the most misused and under, is no one pays attention to how the golf course superintendent maintains the golf course for your enjoyment. Learn a bit, learn a little bit more about the turf grass, other than green side up. Now you're starting to enjoy the game. Now you're becoming a golfer, regardless of score. I think any kind of evaluation is not necessary for a beginner. It's just get, getting the process. And if you get good enough, then start keeping score. You wrote one more thing, one more bullet point for superintendents. And there's more than that in this column. Uh, this is just a sliver of it. But it seems straightforward, maybe simple, but I'm guessing it's not. And that is just educate golfers as a turf pro. Just tell them what airification is, what top dressing is, what phrase mowing is, uh, because you're doing yourself a favor and you're doing them a favor. And and I feel like you write that because you talk with a lot of superintendents, and I'm guessing not a lot of superintendents have the time um, or the inclination, really, to, to educate a lot of their, their players. In many instances today, Matt, I think they, they don't have the time uh, because of the number of rounds that are being squeezed onto the golf course. And the pressure to get things going. Talked to a superintendent from California. He did 18 holes, did 53,000 rounds. Now, again, it's California. It's all year round, but that's a lot of play. That's a lot of play. So you kind of can't get your golf course ready and then try to educate. But how can you do something without telling people what you're doing and why you're doing it? We have all sorts of great resources out there from university sites and, and turf associations, the USGA, et cetera, et cetera, consultants 
And we go through this great scientific analysis of what's going on and why we're doing it, what organic matter percentages mean, and all that other stuff with verification. But we've got to continue to teach. If we continue to teach, then we can train a new set of golfers to understand what it is we do and why we do it. And then when we have to do something for the benefit of the surface that they play on, hopefully there will be an understanding and maybe a transfer of knowledge to the rest of the players at that particular club that, you know what, our guys got to do this stuff, but we can't play. And if we can't play, we're not happy. Again, I don't want to give away too much of the column because I, I do want people to still read it when it's up online later this week. Uh, golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine, Sustain the Boom, Outside the Ropes by Tim Morgan. Anything else you want to talk about from the column? Anything else you want to talk about from the first couple of weeks of 2022? Anything you're looking forward to? Well, I'm in that self-imposed uh, hiatus from the game right now. I'm just waiting for the itch to come back. Uh, but uh, I think we can go look at televised golf for two reasons. As we all know, what you see on television, uh, a surface is prepared for the best players out there. And, and if you've never played with one of the best players, you don't know how good they are and what they do with a golf ball. It's really kind of sickening. So the, the conditioning... Uh, you know, some of those courses they play aren't doing 200 rounds a day and they're closed and all the stuff that we know about televised golf. But the other thing I, I think we've got to watch is the, the process the player goes through to make a golf swing. It takes forever. It's way too long. Most of the time it's unnecessary and we're not playing for millions and millions of dollars. So you don't need to take six practice swings. You don't need to throw grass up into the air a hundred times. You don't need to go to your range finders when you're 50 yards and in. Actually, I had a guy playing one time at that course in New Jersey where he pulled out his range finder on a putting green. And, and I, I, I said, I said, his name is Mike. I said, Mike, we're done. We're never playing golf again. And I, and I get what he was trying to do, but I think that was a little, we don't need to do that because as I said, I always said, none of us are as good as we think we are. So, the byword is fun. Yes, it is. That's what it's supposed to be about. Well, here's to a fun 2022. At this stage of the game, Matt, that's all I'm looking forward to. I like it. Just having some fun. <laughs> Can't wait to see everybody in San Diego. Everybody have a safe trip, masked or unmasked. Uh, it's still going to be a great thing to get together again. And I look forward to seeing everybody from Golf Course Industry Magazine. And I thank you very much for this time. It'll be so fun to see you again, Tim.